and good morning to all of you. Um, it's really good to be with you all today. Um, today we're continuing in our 2020 vision series, um, and we're going to take a look uh, at the first part of our vision statement and really think about what it means to be a people of God, um, being a people of God. Uh, why don't we pray before we begin? Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, we thank you for what it says about us as your church and your people. Father, may you encourage us, and may you teach us, and may you continue to grow us as your church uh, through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about uh, two weeks ago, uh, Veronica and I, we were uh, kind of forced to take a trip to New Zealand. Um, it was a good trip. And we did uh, what we would do uh, here, mostly. Uh, but the reason why it was forced was that the Australian Department of Home Affairs uh, told us that we needed to leave, or Veronica needed to leave uh, the country in 28 days uh, for her partner visa, her resident partner visa, to be granted. And so we had applied for this partner visa in Hong Kong about uh, 10 months ago. And after lots of paperwork, after lots of waiting, after lots of prayer, um, we're thankful that she can now be in Australia, uh, not as a foreigner, but now as a resident. Uh, when we got off the plane um, at Sydney Airport and we were uh, just walking from the gate to immigration, I think there was a sense of expectancy and excitement. Uh, we passed through the immigration gates, and we were kind of almost expecting balloons or firecrackers, uh, people clapping for us, but there was uh, none of that fanfare, no congratulations. Uh, but even then, there was a sense of relief, a sense of relief that we were now here uh, finally as residents and not as foreigners, and that this can now finally be our home. Maybe for some of us here, we have had some of those experiences as well. Um, experiences of moving to a different country, uh, settling in a new city, a different culture, uh, maybe setting up life here in Australia. Well, today's passage, uh, which uh, Sam read for us, uh, reminds us that we as God's people, as a church, uh, we too are looking forward to returning to a home. But the surprising thing is that it says uh, to us that as God's people, whatever culture we find ourselves in, and it doesn't matter whether we've moved um, dozens of times, whether Sydney is the only place that we've called home, our identity in this world is, Peter says, a foreigner, an exile. He says that this world is ultimately not our home. The idea behind this word foreigner or exile is a person who is temporarily living or passing through a place, uh, a visitor to a place, a pilgrim, a sojourner. They're passing through on their way to somewhere else. And one day the idea is that they are going to return home. And as God's people, we too are just passing through. Uh, because we are made for another world and another home. Uh, sometimes when we watch the news or uh, when we read uh, what's on um, social media, uh, when we see bushfires in our country, when we see floods, uh, when we see viruses, when we see war, 
and if not then in the lives of people we know, uh, people in our lives who have passed away from cancer, uh, people who we love who are currently struggling in this life. And when we stop and think about it, there's so much that is broken, so much that is wrong, so much, uh, so much that is painful, unjust, unfair, sinful in this world. But as God's people, Peter reminds us that we are made for another home. And Andrew reminded us of this last week, that as God's people, we're looking forward to a home. Uh, we look forward to a future where there are no tears, there's no death, no mourning, no crying, nor pain, a new heaven and a new earth. We're made for another home. Well, the context of today's passage in uh, the book of 1 Peter is that the Apostle Peter is writing to a group of Christians in Asia Minor, uh, which is modern-day Turkey. And it's during a period of intense persecution under the Roman Empire. Uh, These Christians at that time, they were being persecuted, they were being rejected, they were being ostracized, uh, simply because of their allegiance and faith to Jesus Christ. And some of them are wondering, well, is it, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus anymore, especially when the world looks so good? Why am I following Jesus when everyone around me just laughs at me, when they mock me, they persecute me? And is it worth it to do what is right, what is good, when all that results for me is uh, suffering and persecution for me and my family? And to this discouraged, this ostracized group of Christians, Peter writes this letter to them. And he encourages them, saying, this this world is not your home. That in the midst of your suffering, as you follow Jesus, as you go through intense persecution, as you live in a world that is hostile towards you and your faith, remember that you are just passing through. The same idea is in the book of Philippians when Paul writes, as God's people, our citizenship is in heaven as we await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our identity, our belonging, we are citizens of another kingdom. So as we come to today's text, Peter, he gives us three images. Three images to help us understand who we are as God's people but also how we should live as God's people who are foreigners, exiles looking forward to our new home. Uh, First, he gives us the image of a living stone. Second, an image of a spiritual house. And third, an image of a chosen people. And so uh, in today's time, we'll look at each of these briefly. So first, a living stone. In verse 4 and 5, he says this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Peter says that as God's people, we are like living stones, stones that are modeled after Jesus, the true living stone. And we'll find out in verse 6 and 7 that this living stone is actually also the cornerstone. 
this is kind of a strange idea, so let me just unpack this a little bit. Um, in the ancient world, when people were preparing to build a building or a house, uh, one of the first and most important things they would do is they would find uh, what they call a cornerstone. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it's a stone in the corner of a building. And you can kind of see an example of this. Um, this is uh, from ancient Rome. And there's that large stone in the very corner of a building. And this cornerstone had two purposes. Uh, first, the cornerstone is the foundation stone. And so this stone is the most solid, the most unshakable part of the building. And it's also the part of the building that would go down first into the foundation. And it sustains the rest of this building. And this stone was the stone that would be built around and would anchor the entire building. And so builders, they would go to the quarry and they would look for this perfectly shaped mass of stone, the most solid stone they could find. That can be the cornerstone and that would hold the walls in place and be the integrity of this building. And this cornerstone had two purposes. Uh, first, uh, it was, uh, sorry, the second function of this cornerstone is also in its symmetry. It is also the stone that is perfect, uh, where every stone is brought to and it's cut according to the stone. And so if this cornerstone is off, just a little bit, all the other stones that are cut according to the stone will also be off. And when you start to build this building, the whole building can actually become leaning if it's not cut well. It's a really important stone that this whole building is built on top of. And so the cornerstone is a stone which the rest of the building takes place. It determines the direction of the building, it's what brings the whole building together. And all the pieces are formed and cut according to this cornerstone. And Peter says that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. And those who believe in him also become living stones in the structure. They're copied after him, they're cut after him, and modeled after him. And it's kind of a strange idea. I don't know if you can get your mind around this idea that you and I as Christians are these little stones that are cut and shaped and crafted after Jesus, the cornerstone. But Peter goes on and he references three Old Testament texts in verse 6 to 8. In verse 6 it says this, For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. A reference to Isaiah 26.8. Verse 7 it says, Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A reference to Psalm 118.22. Verse 8, And a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is what they were destined for. A reference to Isaiah 8.14. 
And so Peter here, he uh, uses these Old Testament references to answer a question. And the question is, who gets to be part of God's people? Who gets to be a living stone? Who gets to be part of this house, this people of God? And Peter, in these three verses, he says that those who are living stones are those who have been chosen by God. Those who have trusted and believed in Jesus, those who have cherished him and have made him the foundation by which they live. And he says that everyone who else who does not believe in him and reject him, they will stumble over the stone and they cannot be part of the people of God. Peter says what you do with Jesus is the determining factor of whether or not you are the people of God. I like this image of the cornerstone. You either fit in this building and you're cut according to him, or you cannot be part of this building. And here's the part of this passage that I find quite interesting. Because Peter says that as we come to God, uh, verse 4, we too become living stones. But in verse 9, he also says that we're not just living stones, but we too are a chosen people. We too become precious, God's special possession. Just a little background to the text. Um, the people that uh, P Peter was writing to, they were ostracized from the community. Um, at that time, they were a broken people, sinful, messy. And in their society, because they were Christians, they were considered the most worthless. They were considered the lowest caste in society. They were hated. They were persecuted. They were ostracized and outcast from the rest of society. They were living in a world and society that had absolutely no place for them. Yet I think this is what is surprising uh, that Peter writes to a group of people who were considered the most worthless. No one wanted them. They were the most hated, the most unwanted. Peter says with absolute sincerity to them, you are chosen by God of the universe. You are chosen as his people. When no one wants you, you are God's special possession, his choice possession. And in the same way, he says that to us today. And if anyone could write this, it was the Apostle Peter himself. If you remember, Peter was a disciple of Jesus. And if you remember, there was an episode where Jesus, he was spending time uh, with his disciples, and he asked them, who do people say that I am? And the disciples replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, others say you're a prophet. And then Jesus asked them, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter comes out with this uh, really deep theological statement, and he says, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. And Jesus then says to him, blessed are you, son of Simon, Simon, son of Jonah. And he says, now I will call you Peter, which means the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Later on, Jesus, in another scene, he's with his disciples. 
And he says to Peter, right before he's killed, Peter, you're going to disown me three times. And Peter says, no way, even if I'm going to die, I will never disown you. And then what happens? He disowns Jesus in front of everyone. Jesus? Who is Jesus? I don't know him. Not once, but twice, three times. And it's easy to look at Peter and think, Peter, a rock, a solid rock, he's actually more like mud. You can't count on someone like that. He's weak. He betrayed you, Jesus. Why would Peter call him the rock that he'll use to build his church? But if there's anyone in the world, Peter can say this with confidence. Because he himself knows his own weaknesses, his own struggles, his own sin. But because of how God sees him, and because of what God sees of you and me, we can be living stones, a holy priesthood, a chosen race, a people of God, God's special, most valued possessions. And we might think, why me, God? Why would you choose me? Why would you want to use me? When I see all my sins and my failures and how I've disobeyed, and God will go, I see your sin, but I also see the blood of Jesus on you. And I see his righteousness that covers all of your sins. And I called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So I say in Christ, you are a living stone, chosen by people, my special possession. That's what God calls us. But as we move on, uh, we uh, see the second image that Peter uses. And it's the image of a spiritual house. In verse 5, Peter says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be holy, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Peter here says that your identity and my identity are like these breathing rocks and stones that are built up into a house, this household of God, the building of which Jesus is the cornerstone. And I think one implication of this image is that our individual significance and identity can't actually be fully realized unless we are part of a church. If you have an individual brick or a stone, you don't realize its full potential and purpose unless it's used in conjunction with all these other bricks. By itself, a brick can be a doorstop, it can be a paperweight, but Peter's saying you don't realize its full potential unless you use this brick to build a house with other bricks. And similarly, if we're Christians, there's a limitation to what we can understand about ourselves, our purpose, our significance on our own. But we need to be part of a church. We need other bricks. We need to be part of a spiritual house in order to fully realize why we're here. Where we found, formed this foundation, the walls, the roof, 
the posts, the ceiling, the hallways of the spiritual house. And every forms itself together and you're being made into the spiritual house of which there's a cornerstone. And I think this is quite a statement to make in Western culture. In our highly individualistic culture that says actually the exact opposite, which says if you want to discover your identity, your purpose, you need to look within. You need to look at your own passions, what you want to do, your own desires, and discover what your own purpose is and significance is. But we also find that here, the house that is being built is not just any house, it is a spiritual house. And because it's a spiritual house, it's supposed to remind us of the temple, the temple of Israel, temple of God. In many ancient religions, the way you connect with God is through a temple, a physical temple. And that's true of some religions, even in today's society. And therefore, if you've read the Old Testament, uh, the temple was of utmost significance to the people of Israel. And when it was destroyed, it was devastating to them because it was only through this temple that they connect with God. When Jesus came to earth, um, he does something quite radical. And what he starts to do is he starts to condemn temple religion. And he begins to talk about the destruction of this physical temple. And after Jesus dies and he's raised and he ascends into heaven, there's something noticeably absent in the Christian faith. There's no physical building called a temple anymore. And why is there no more temple? And the reason is not because we as Christians do not need a temple to connect with God. We still need a temple. But the reason now is that the temple is now the church, the people of God. And Paul, he talks about this, how we, the people of God, are the temple in 1 Corinthians. And I think the implication is this. The primary way that you connect with God is not being by yourself in the woods with your own thoughts. But the primary way you connect with God is in the context of the temple which is the church. As we gather to hear God's word preached, as we meet for care groups or small groups, as we worship and serve and love together, and that means church is not this optional extra, an add-on to the Christian faith, but it's absolutely essential to us as Christians. And if you're someone who wants to know God and know Jesus and want to connect with him, the church is absolutely essential to that. And it's quite an amazing claim about the importance and significance as, of church and us meeting as God's people. The church is what gives us meaning, and it's through the church that we connect with God. Uh, I think for some of us, we know that church is essential. Uh, we know that it's important. But yet, oftentimes, there's this hesitancy to want to invest and engage in it. And I think sometimes when we ask ourselves why, I think for some of us, the answer is because church life is not easy. It's difficult. Sometimes it's even painful. If you notice in verse 5, it says that you, like living stones, are being built up 
into a spiritual house. Being built up, it's a continuous action, ongoing action. And what this means is that no church is going to be perfect right away. No church is going to be absolutely complete. But every single church is going to be a community that is in progress, a community that is growing. And I think that tells us a lot about the difficulties we'll encounter in church. Uh, sometimes there may be imperfections, uh, problems, issues. And maybe some of us here have experienced just how difficult and painful church life can sometimes be. But this passage reminds us that God himself is the builder. He's the one building our church. And what he's doing, he's fitting and shaping these imperfect, misshaped stones, fitting them together into his house, into his spiritual house. And when we think about church, uh, what I realize is oftentimes it's so easy to be tempted to be the judge and the jury of the church rather than loving and praying, humbly humbling myself and realizing God himself is building this church. And I think that oftentimes there's this uh, temptation to criticize and to complain. And often we're tempted to judge and compare and break down. And we do this in a lot of ways. We think, well, why can't things be done like this? Why are things done this way? Why do I have to listen to this person? Why do I have to bother with that problem? And slowly we're tempted and our love and our heart for the church begins to fade. And we're not there anymore as living stones. And instead of being able to say, well, thank you, God, for the gift of this church. Thank you for bringing us together as living stones and asking, how can I be of encouragement and of service to the body and the people of God? So as we hear Peter's words, uh, we must first and foremost come to the living stone, the one who transforms us through his word and through his spirit, so that we can come into the community of living stones, offering ourselves as spiritual sacrifices, as a support, as an encouragement to others, and given thanks that he has chosen us to be his people, to be part of his house. Finally and lastly, uh, we come to the last image, which is a chosen people. This is in verse 9, uh, starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And Peter here, he in the first part, he goes back to the Old Testament, uh, where God is actually using a very similar description uh, to the people of Israel. Uh, this is put in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, where God says, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Very similar language here. And the idea is behind this that out of every single nation in this world, God has chosen a people for himself to be a special possession. They're distinctly God's people. And in the same way, we as a church today, just like Israel in the Old Testament, are God's special possession that he has chosen.
Peter goes on and he tells us it's for a purpose. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And then there's this purpose clause in uh, this, this verse. He says, that or so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In verse 11, he goes on, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And Peter finally reminds us that we as God's people have a mission in this world. We have a purpose. He says, first, we are to declare the truth of our Savior. Verse 9 says, to declare the praises of him. Uh, this phrase means to vocally declare what the Lord has done for us. We are to proclaim to a lost world the excellencies, the beauties, the majesties of the Lamb of God, of Jesus. And we should be a vocal people in our willingness and desire to share Jesus with this world. And that's our purpose until the Lord calls us home. But secondly, in verse 11 and 12, we're not only to proclaim the truth about our Savior, to declare this truth verbally, we're also to demonstrate this, uh, the truth of our salvation with our lives. So there's a vocal side, but also there's a visible side to it. We're to articulate it, to share it, to use our words, but also we're to use our lives and show it by the way that we live. Uh, we as God's people, and for each one of us, we only have one life to live. Uh, the book of James talks about how short our lives are. It's like a wintry breath, a vapor. You breathe out warm air. On a cold day, you see it, and in an instant, it just disappears. That's our lives. That's our lives. And God says you and we as God's people have only one life to live. And what are you going to do with it until he calls you home? I think a lot of times we're so busy trying to establish ourselves in this world. And our focus and intentions are about putting roots down which are good. And maybe it's finding the perfect spouse perfect home, gaining our career started, our families. And none of these things are bad in and of themselves. But as Christians, Peter reminds us that our ultimate identity are as foreigners and exiles in this world. And that should affect the goals and the priorities with which we live. Each one of us are chosen by God for a purpose. Each one of us are chosen to have a ministry. You know, it's not just the pastors, the deacons, the missionaries in this room. Peter calls all of us priests. All of us are supposed to be ministers of the gospel. And even our homes, our workplaces, our employment can be more than just a place that we make money or things that we have to do. But they can be a powerful place of ministry. And so whatever context, whatever vocation, Wherever you find yourself before God calls us home, Peter reminds us that we have to make the most of every opportunity because we are bearers of good news 
to a dying world. And this is why I love the vision statement that God has given to us as a church. That as a people of God, we are ultimately to reach out with the gospel until Jesus returns. How we live today echoes into the rest of eternity. When we walk out the doors of this church, uh, we are now entering our mission field. Uh, This place is great, church is great, but our lives are not meant to be lived within the four walls of this building. We're called to go out. That's where the harvest is. My prayer is that as we as God's people, that we can show the world how the citizens of heaven live so that ultimately they will know Christ and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your choice um, in choosing us as your people. And Father, may you really use this passage to continue to encourage us uh, to be committed to the church, to be thankful for the church, but also to be committed to the world as we share the good news and live our lives um, in honor of you uh, so that others may come to know you as well. We give you thanks and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.